Hallelujah. So last week, if you remember, Pastor Joseph was talking about the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus after he ascends. And uh, we saw the Holy Spirit just come on to the disciples. And it wasn't just the 12 disciples. It was all of the disciples that were there. The Holy Spirit comes like a rushing, mighty wind and falls on all of them. And then they begin speaking in other tongues. And when this happens, what's happening is, is the, the disciples, they're, they're probably in the same house with the upper room, and that house gets filled with the Holy Spirit, the, the, the rushing wind, and, and people in the surrounding areas, it must have been loud because they took notice, and they all head that way to see what's going on. And what was amazing is that when they show up, the disciples are speaking in tongues, and what do you know they begin to hear what the disciples were saying in their own language. Well, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? And, and you'll recall that the scripture points out, it, it seems pretty clear to me that, that it doesn't say they were necessarily speaking in other languages, it says they were speaking in other tongues, but the people there were hearing them in their languages. And what an amazing moment. What an incredible, I mean, can you imagine showing up to a church service, someone begins addressing the church in tongues, but you can understand it in your own language. And you got a Brazilian guy next to you, and, and he's understanding it in his own language, and you got a French guy next to you, and he's understanding. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? You see, they had just received the power that Jesus told them to wait for. And as you might presume, it kind of causes quite a stir among those who are in the area. I mean, it was so abnormal what was happening that some people were claiming the disciples were drunk. And as Pastor Joseph mentioned last week and again this morning, today we get to hear Peter explain. See, I, I'm just going to tell you what Peter said. Peter's the one that's going to explain what just happened and what it means. Amen? So we got a lot of stuff to get through today, so no distractions. I'm counting on you guys. If you ever want to get out of here today, we got to keep rolling. we got to keep getting through it. It's, it's a big section today. So we'll start in verse 14 and 15, and it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, as the accusations and the criticisms from the crowd are starting to mount up, they're getting louder. Look at all these drunk guys out here. Peter stands up, filling that leadership role that he's been stepping into, and, and, and he stands to make a defense. Now, I wonder, as I'm reading the story, if it's like today, where really... Um, most people are amazed at what God is doing, and they're completely content, but there's this uh, small group of really loud people pointing out stuff. You know, that's how it is today, right? Most people are, are content to just live their lives, but we have a lot of, a very minority uh, amount of people that are just making lots of noise today, amen? So I wonder if that's what it was, or if there was a lot of people freaking out, or if there was just those few in the back yelling real loud. Something else that I found interesting as I was studying this is that um, this speech, actually like many others in Scripture, is probably just a summary of what was being said. 
It was, it was really Luke's words used to summarize and describe the things that Peter was teaching, the things uh, that, that Peter was, was, was saying. And uh, rather than a nonstop quote of what, you know, this isn't a transcription of Peter's speech. And it makes sense because I imagine Peter preached for some time. I mean, these people were hungry. I mean, I imagine some of you guys would be excited if I just got up and read a chapter and stood back down. But, but Peter was a good preacher. They probably wanted to hear what he had to say. So it makes sense because so, he preached for some time. But we have it in here just like, you know, uh, in this case, it's just a handful of verses that are, that are quoting what, or at least describing what, what uh, Peter had said. And this is what the new, the new Bible commentary, this is how it puts it. It says, in this regard, Luke's practice may not have been too different from the secular historians of his era, for whom speeches formed an important part of their work. Their aim seems to have been to provide a summary that preserved the characteristics of the occasion and of the speaker. Luke seems to have followed this pattern in his speech, which arguably preserves features of what Peter said on just such an occasion and in the other speeches that he records. Now, this would be much like today. If you were to write a couple paragraphs describing what I preach today, you would, you would, you would go ahead and, and, and condense and summarize the main points, right? You might have a few direct quotes in there, but, but if you were to write the entire thing that I have to say today, you couldn't do that in a couple paragraphs. However, this doesn't make what we're reading, the writing, the Scripture, any less. Because we can be confident that it's still the Word of God, right? Because Luke, even though he's describing what happened, we know that Peter spoke under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And we know that Peter, uh, Luke wrote these things under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So we can be confident that what God wanted us to hear is actually recorded down. We can't say, oh, no, this is just a summary. It's not really God's Word. He didn't write what Peter wrote. We can be confident that what, what is still written is still the Word of God. Amen. It's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Peter, what he does is he begins to address the crowd. And uh, uh, first he says, all you men of Judea, which is like the whole <laughs> surrounding region, and all those who dwell in Jerusalem. And those who dwell in Jerusalem, if you read Acts 2.5, it says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. There were a bunch of different people groups in, in Jerusalem right now. These are all the ones that are dwelling there. So this is a pretty big crowd that shows up. And, and the first thing he addresses is this accusation of being drunk. He's got to deal with that first because if they, if they can't get over seeing things as being drunk, then they're never going to hear what the disciples have to say. And he says, listen, guys, we're not drunk as you're saying. It's only the third hour of the day. Now, for those of you who want to know, the third hour of the day is about 9 a.m. There's a pretty simple math equation that you can figure out when they're talking about the hours of the day. The day starts, the morning starts at 6 a.m. So the third hour is 6 plus 3 is 9 a.m. So right, so what would be the second hour of the day? 8, more, 8 a.m. It's more than just a pretty face. Right? So that it's simple math to figure out. So it's 9 a.m. And he's saying, listen, guys, it's 9 a.m. There is no way we're all drunk. And, and if you think about it, 
over 100 plus men at least being drunk at 9 a.m. is pretty far-fetched. Even in today's society, you just don't see that. Maybe one guy might be drunk at 9 a.m. or even a handful, but not, not over 100. And I'm just estimating how many were there because Acts 1.15 says, and this is the first time they met in the upper room, there was 120 people there in that upper room. And then in Acts 2.1, when it's talking about this gathering, it says they were all gathered there in this house. So I'm imagining there's at least 120 that were there the first time. And then we hear the, 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 the Holy Spirit fills the entire house. So maybe there was even more than the 120 disciples packed in this house when the, when the Holy Spirit shows up. So um, I think that's a pretty good argument. Listen, all 100 plus of us are not drunk this morning. And then some have argued that speaking in tongues means to speak in, in these, these uh, languages that you don't know. And they use these passages as evidence, right? So um, we have these, these, these people showing up, and they're all speaking in tongues, right? So, and we've got, I think we can safely say, at least 120 people all speaking in, in, in tongues. And some people, when they talk about tongues, they say, oh, no, what the Bible means by speaking in tongues is, is God giving you the ability to speak in a different language that you don't know, which I guess is true, but what they mean is a known language that you don't know, right? So, like, maybe if I went to France and I began speaking in tongues, then, then I really wouldn't be speaking an unknown language. I would be speaking French, but I just didn't know that I could, right? That makes sense? So they, they use these scriptures as evidence of that because they say the disciples are all speaking in these other, other known languages. But as I, I mentioned in the intro, and, and, and even here, the scripture makes it pretty clear that they were hearing them in their language. It never says they were speaking in their language. And when I read Acts 2, 6 through 11, and you can read that when you have a moment or just check back at it now, it almost seems to me that... These people were amazed that they were all hearing him speak in their own language, almost like three different guys that know three different languages are listening to one person, and they're all hearing them in their own language. At least that's the impression that I get when I read that. That's, that's why they're amazed. They're like, man, we're hearing these guys speak in our own language. So it seems to me that, that it is the hearing that's happening, not the speaking in the different languages. The second point that I think demonstrates that they were speaking in unknown languages, in heavenly languages, in tongues, is because the argument is for them being drunk. There are several different nations mentioned in this group. In Acts 2, 9 through 11, it says there's the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, and we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty words of God. This is a lot of people. And we just learned that all these people are dwelling together. They're, they're aware of the dialects and the languages that are being spoken around them, even if they don't understand it. So let me give you an example. I can recognize Spanish. I can recognize French. I can recognize German. I can recognize Russian. 
I can recognize that those languages are being spoken even if I don't understand what's being said, right? Because I recognize, and, and Japanese is another one. When I hear Japanese being spoken, I, can, I, can, I recognize that it's that, it, that, it's that language. So whenever I walk down the street, the street, the street, and I see somebody speaking in another language, you want to know what the first thing that, that has never come to my mind is? Wow, those people must be drunk because they're speaking in a language that I don't know. I recognize that they're speaking. I may not understand it, but I recognize that it's a language. So if these folks were speaking in languages that they would all have understood uh, existed and they would have recognized, why would they say, these men must be drunk? I believe it's because they, they heard them speaking. The ones that weren't hearing them in their own like, tongues, they're hearing you know, what we hear when people speak and pray in tongues today. It's an unknown language. We just don't understand. And if you've ever heard people pray or speak in tongues, you can go, I get what they mean by they must be drunk because you've, you've seen it yourself. It's, it's a language that's, that not only do you not know, but really we don't recognize either because it's an unknown language. Amen? Does that make sense? So then as we continue on, verses 16 through 21, Peter continues to explain what's just happened. First is, listen, they're not drunk. Let me tell you what's happening. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood and before, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter begins to explain what's, listen guys, they're not drunk. Here's what's happening. What you are witnessing is the fulfillment of prophecy spoken by Joel. You can read about it in Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 28. And, and this is almost a direct quote. And, and, and the prophecy starts off, and in the last days. Now, I've heard some people say that, you know, they see what's going on, the wars and the craziness, and, and they go, oh, man, we're, we're in the last days now. And they, or, or we're getting real close to the last days now. And we have all these people that have these ideas of when the last days are going to start. But I believe that the last days started when Jesus died and rose again from the cross. We've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. You see, the last days doesn't refer to a, a, you know, a handful of days. We're not talking like you know, 20, 30 days. It's an age. It's an era. And that's what we're in. We're in this age, this era of the last days since Jesus rose again from the cross. And I think this verse actually perfectly demonstrates that because the prophecy refers to the last days. It says, Joel's prophecy, in the last days. And Peter says, some of these things are happening right now. Well, if some of these things are happening right now and these things happen in the last days, 
kind of tells me that the last days are happening right then. Matter of fact, if you look at the other scriptures, they thought the last days were going to happen right then. They thought Jesus was coming back. Matter of fact, Paul had to write to the Thessalonian church and say, listen, guys, you didn't miss it. You didn't miss it. They thought it was going to happen right now, but it, it's, it's, it's been lasting for two, over 2,000 years. And, and for all we know, these last days are going to last for another 2,000 years. And the truth is, it's probably good if it does. Because the Lord is not slow as we count slowness, but he is patient so that all will come to repentance. Amen? But church, we are in the last days. And this day of the Lord that he's talking about, it could happen at any moment. We need to be ready. We must be on guard. So what's going to happen in these last days that that Peter's talking about? Well, one, it says that God will pour out his spirit. God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. This is what happened that morning when the Holy Spirit fell upon them. This was the the promise of the Holy Spirit being received by the church. And he says, on all flesh. How much flesh? All flesh. That means you and me too. And it says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. You want to know why the young men see visions and the old men dream dreams? Because the old guys are always sleeping. And then it says, all my servants, even the servants, are going to receive, have the, the Spirit of God poured out upon them. You know, if you take anything away from this, one, know that it's happening now in these last days, and know it's available to you because it's on everyone Every single one of us has the ability to be filled with the Spirit and operate in His gifts. Now, it is the Spirit's choice. It's He's the one that gives the gifts under His direction, but you have to be willing and be obedient to move in those spirits, to move in that Spirit. Matter of fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, that we should earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit. He actually says we should desire the higher gifts Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it'll be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you are who evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Paul says to desire the greater gifts. If you ask God for the gifts of the Spirit, he's not going to give you something else. Amen. And church, I think we should be desiring them. You know, the truth is, is that we're a church that believes in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But uh, there's not very many of us who are willing to operate in them. And I'm not calling you out, myself included. I... It's real easy to, to other than praying in tongues regularly, I, I think we should see more people coming up. And if God gives you a word, come up and share it with the church. Prophesy over people. New Testament prophecy is not like Old Testament prophecy where you are, are telling the future. You know, that's where, where thus saith the Lord God gives you a word. New Testament prophecy is about uplifting and building people up. 
about encouraging people in the Lord. We should be doing that more often. If God gives you a, a prophetic word for somebody, an encouragement for somebody, man, tell them about it. If he gives it for the church, come and tell the church about it. I'll give you a microphone. Let's address the church. Why do you have to get a microphone? Because there may be people in our church that are listening online, and they need to hear it too. Amen? The reality is, is that, that we should be desiring to operate in these gifts and desiring to have them and asking God to fill us because we need that power, amen? That the whole point was that Jesus would go in a sin so that the, the Spirit's power would fall upon us. Then he goes and he continues on with some more parts of this prophecy. See, some of these things haven't happened yet that Joel speaks about. Some have, the, the Spirit being poured out on all flesh, and then what we're going to read now hasn't. So if we're still in these two bookended things that have to happen, we're in the last days, amen? Have been for several thousand years. And he goes on in verse 20, he says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day. So this sign is going to happen before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is judgment day when, when Christ returns, and it's similar to what's being described in other verses um, uh, in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. We'll just look at a couple from the New Testament. Matthew 13, 24 through 26 says, But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming and clouds with a great power and glory. Some of that sound familiar? The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Sounds very, very familiar, very similar, doesn't? And then it talks about the day of the Lord. Or in, in Matthew, the Son of Man coming in the clouds when Jesus returns, the day of the Lord. Revelation 6, 12 through 13 says this, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked back, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sixth seal is opened, what appears to me, right before Jesus' return. This is the, the events that are similar, the, the sun being darkened, the moon being turned to blood, and then the day of the Lord comes. We're in those last days, and, and that, that day is coming, church. We need to be ready. Amen. And then he says, in these days, the last days, it'll come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that good news? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. You know, some people say that uh, the gifts of the Spirit and this outpouring, you know, it's just for that time, not for this time. But when I read these scriptures, it says that these things that we just talked about are going to happen in the last days. Jesus pouring out a Spirit. Then we're going to have, you know, the, the sun not shining, the day of the Lord coming. And then in these times, the, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no indication that these things end, but if they do end, why are we just picking out that section? If the, if the, the Holy Spirit coming and being poured out on all flesh is going to end, does that mean this part is going to end as well, all those people who call on the name of the Lord? And if it doesn't, why, are we, why do people come up with this idea that one ends and the other doesn't? You can't have it both ways. 
But the truth is, is that until the end, until the day of the Lord, until he comes back, people have a chance to say yes to Jesus. They can call on his name. And it doesn't say that they, he, they, they might be saved or they could be saved. It says they shall be saved. If you call on the name of the Lord, it's a guarantee that you will be saved. You don't have to be confused. You don't have to, 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 to worry about, you know, am I saved? Am I not saved? You can be confident. Amen? And I'm so glad that it's open to anyone who is willing to put their trust in Jesus. And then in Acts 22 through 24, he goes on, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that you did, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So now Peter shifts from ancient prophecy and brings it home to the present day, or rather the the very near past, right? And as you guys know, it wasn't very long ago that the Jews brought Jesus to the Romans to be crucified. And it's likely that many of those who were in this crowd this morning were right there yelling, crucify him. However, this man, Jesus, that they claim was a blasphemer, was actually sent by God. Peter says that his mighty works, signs, and miracles, he was attested by God with mighty works, signs, and miracles. These these works, signs, and miracles were, were evidence provided by God that he was sent by God. It was his definite plan And he was sent with foreknowledge of God, right? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was was God's idea. So this was this man that that, that, that God sent, sent all kinds of evidence that God sent him, but they had him delivered over to the Romans to be killed. Now, you might look at this and go, you know what? If the Romans were actually successful, and killing Jesus, isn't this pretty good evidence that Jesus wasn't who he said he was? I mean, if God really sent him, so this, imagine, this is the argument that these men are making. If God really sent him, would God let him have been killed by the Romans? However, Peter says that, listen, him actually being delivered over to these lawless men and be, to be crucified, that was all part of the plan. Him being delivered was part of the plan and foreknowledge of God. And even death couldn't hold him because he rose again from the dead. And it's amazing because Peter's like, listen, if you didn't believe the signs and the wonders and the miracles and all the mighty works that Jesus did with his life, if you didn't believe that was evidence by God that Jesus was who he said he was, then maybe the resurrection will open your eyes. Because if that wasn't proof enough, certainly death not being able to hold him, him rising from the dead, certainly that would be enough to make you believe. Certainly that would be enough that they would open their eyes. 
And then Peter once again turns to the scriptures, Acts 2, 25 through 28. He says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So once again, Peter's turning to scriptures and pointing out about Jesus' death and resurrection, that this has actually been prophesied. And this is quoted from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And now Peter's going to explain how this applies to Jesus. In Acts 29 through 32, it says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter says, let's talk about this scripture. This is the patriarch David speaking. And after you read this passage, a legitimate question you could ask is, who is the Holy One that David was speaking of? Now, those who were there would likely argue that David or that David was referring to himself when he said these things. But Peter says, listen, it couldn't have been David. I can say, Peter says, I can say to you for, with confidence that the patriarch David he both died and was buried, and his tomb is still with us today. Matter of fact, if you want, we can go visit his tomb right now. We'll crack open uh, the, the tomb, and you'll take a look in, and you'll see his bones. You'll see that it's evident that his body underwent decay. So if Peter, or, or if David lived, died, underwent decay, then certainly he couldn't have been talking about himself. But instead, David was a prophet, and he was speaking prophetically about Jesus. The Holy One is Jesus. Jesus was the one who wasn't abandoned to Hades. Jesus was the one whose flesh didn't see corruption. It was Jesus who rose from the dead. And this is just one of the hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, giving evidence that he is who he said he was, and he did what he said he did. You know, one of the things that I've talked about quite a lot recently is this idea of, 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 of too many of us don't recognize that there is plenty of valid evidence demonstrating evidence of the resurrection, evidence of Jesus' life, evidence that Jesus is who he says he was. So many people think that we take this on blind faith, but there is so much evidence for it. One of these is all the prophecies that Jesus fulfills. This just being one of them. In addition, we actually have great evidence for the resurrection right here in this passage. The last verse right here says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. You see, Peter points out that, listen, all of you guys here that showed up to figure out what the rushing and mighty sound of wind was, you were, all, you were witnesses to Christ's resurrection. You were there when it happened. You know of this. How many of you know that Luke wrote this letter when these people were still alive? 
If Luke were lying or if Luke were wrong, we would see other evidence, other ancient writings, other things saying, listen, this Luke guy is a liar. He says that they were all witnesses, but, but Billy Joe is my cousin, and he said that that didn't happen. Right? These, are, these people are all alive. If this didn't happen, they could say that it didn't happen. But we don't find that in any of the historical evidence that there's any refuting of these writings. That, that goes for all of these letters that you find in the New Testament. There's no refuting. Matter of fact, all we see is historical evidence supporting that Jesus lived, that he died, that, he, that, he, that something happened. If they don't flat out say that he, resur- that he resurrected, the writings say that they, his disciples believed that he resurrected, or they, they demonstrate how something changed, something happened, and now they had these, these, these followers, these Christians. We see evidence in the historical writings that these things are true, not that they're false. If these people were alive and Luke was lying, they could have just called them a liar. But they didn't, which is just more proof for us today that what is written is historically accurate. Amen? Verse 33 through 35 says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So now Peter turns back to the question that was asked. In Acts 2.12. In verse 12, it says, They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? So Jesus, after he was resurrected, he was exalted at the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit was sent. And Peter says, What you have seen is what just happened here. He says, He received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he sent it to us. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's like what you just saw, the Holy Spirit coming in, the rushing and mighty wind, the tongues of fire following us, you hearing us speak in other languages. That was Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father and sending the promised Holy Spirit. You guys are, this is not just a bunch of drunk people getting together. This is moving of the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit just as was promised by Jesus. And then just to make sure that they understood that it wasn't David who ascended, he quotes Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is another instance where David is referring to the Father and Jesus. And he says, the Lord, speaking of the Father, is speaking to my Lord, speaking of Jesus, telling him to sit at his right hand till his enemies are dealt with. This is when Jesus ascends and sits at the right hand of the Father. David was speaking, prophesying of the very events that happened after Jesus' ascension. And Jesus has now ascended and is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And then now, Peter's going to give him a little gut punch. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel know, or of Israel therefore know for certain 
that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So while the crowd thought that Jesus was a blasphemer or an imposter or a criminal, they needed to understand that they had gotten it wrong. This man that they crucified was both Lord and Christ. Amen. And as you might expect, this makes them pucker up just a little bit. Acts 2.37 says, When they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Have you ever done something that after you did it, you realize you had made a mistake so bad or done something so wrong that it causes a visceral reaction in your body? So one time I used to work, uh, I used to work for a company called Leishanok Network Solutions and I did IT work and I was working, we were like the IT department for other companies. And uh, I was out working on this company and basically, a long story short, is the, uh, the, the program that ran their, their email, which is called Microsoft Exchange, between 2003 and the 2008 release, they had made some changes in how the interface worked. It used to be when you wanted to delete a mailbox, just a mailbox, You'd go on Exchange 2003, you'd highlight the mailbox, right-click, hit delete. You get a warning like, hey, this is, you know, if you do this, it's, it's permanent. And you delete the mailbox. In 2008, they made a change that when you deleted the, the person's mailbox in, in the Exchange console, it didn't just delete the mailbox, it deleted the entire user account from their entire system. And you get a little pop-up that says, hey, if you do this, you're going to delete the user. So you've got a warning just like before. It just was worded slightly different. And um, um, so you deleted the user. Well, I was in the process of moving them from their local Exchange server up to the cloud. So once I had moved everything, all the mailboxes to the cloud, I needed to delete all the mailboxes locally. So I highlighted every single one, right-click, delete, saw the pop, the warning pop up, but I, I knew what that meant. Who cares? Hit OK. And I began going my business. A few minutes later, all of a sudden, my account can't do anything. I, it doesn't it recognize the, the account that I, the admin account I'm working with, I had just deleted along with every other person's account in the organization. My whole body got hot. Like it was, it was like once I realized what I did, like you don't understand, like these people wouldn't be able to work the next day. Like I had, I had. It was a very long night fixing that. And I'll have you know that when I was done, all they had to do was reset their password and we got it back up and running. But, like, my, it's almost like I felt electricity run through my body. My body got hot. It was, it, was, it was like this visceral response. I wonder if that's what these guys felt when they just had all this evidence demonstrated that they had just crucified the Christ. Could you imagine? But you know what? They had the correct reaction. I got to stop leaning on this, or before long, I'm going to be talking to you guys like this. <laughs> Hallelujah. This is why we need a podium and not a. Uh... Yeah, praise God. So, but they had the right reaction. You see, many people today, when confronted, with this reality that they're guilty before God, they become defensive. They argue that I'm a good, I'm a good person. 
And if, if God wants to punish me, then he's the bad guy. He's the one that's wrong. I don't want to. So they either become defensive or some just become belligerent, completely disregarding God's authority. But what they should behave like is these men here and ask what they need to do to get right with God. And the good news is the answer is the same today as it was for these men. When you ask, when you realize that you're in a mess, the question is, what should I do? And Peter says to them in verse 38 through 41, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The solution is easy. Repent. That means turn away from your sin and turn towards God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. You see, once you believe, you have to make an outward expression of what just happened. And that's what baptism is. It's an outward expression of being buried and rising again in newness of life in Jesus Christ. And he says when you do this, basically when you get saved, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't it awesome that these men would not remain condemned even for being a part of crucifying Jesus. Listen, I don't care what you've done, how bad you think it is. There is nothing that you've done that's bad enough that you can't be redeemed from, that Jesus wasn't more than enough. These people killed the Son of God, yet they could still repent and be redeemed. That's amazing. And then he says that, and then when you get saved, it's true. You receive the Holy Spirit the moment that you're saved. He takes up residence inside of you. But what I believe Peter's referring to here when he says that you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit is not receiving the Spirit in salvation, but it's actually the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit. The reason I believe that, that's the whole context of this entire passage. It's about the Holy Spirit coming upon them, right? When, when, when uh, uh, the disciples were with Jesus, when he was still on the earth, before he ascended, Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. But then they had the promise of the Holy Spirit coming upon them that was going to happen on the day of Pentecost, which was many days later, an event that was subsequent to salvation. And I think that's what Peter's talking about because that's what the whole purpose that they're dealing with right now. He says, listen, if you repent, be baptized in the name uh, of Jesus, then, then you're going to be saved, and then you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are for, far off. This is for everyone. Salvation is available to all, which is amazing, but so is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's available to all of us that are saved, that are born again. It's available for everyone. That's just amazing to me. Because you don't know everything about me, but I know everything about me, and I don't know if I would save me. You guys laugh, but I think if you're honest with yourself, it's probably the same thing. The reality is, is that we're not deserving of it, but he still made it available to all of us. And not just salvation, 
were made brand new. And then even then, the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit is available to us as well. And then Luke lets us know that he finishes it off. Peter finishes off this little speech with a plea. He says, for the promises for you and your children, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then with many other words in verses 40 through 41, and witness as he continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. He says, listen, guys, you need to repent. You need to save yourself from this crooked generation. And he, he pleased with them. And then those who received Peter's words and the, the words of those who were speaking this day, because I imagine all the disciples were preaching. Those who believed what Peter said and put their trust in Jesus, they were saved. They were baptized. And that day, 3,000 souls were saved. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to see that. I want to see, I, I want what happened in the book of Acts to happen here, people getting saved by the thousands. I want to see people saved like this, amen. 